Before we get to today's episode of the Running the Bases podcast, just want to take a minute to remind everyone that every episode of the Running the Bases podcast is available at our website, runningthebases.com. Shout out to SoundCloud for being the host of the Running the Bases podcast RSS feed all the way back to 2014. Great show today. We have Clayton Trudor, author, professor. He's written a book about Atlanta uh, and Atlanta sports in the 60s and 70s called Loserville. It comes out in February. And then after that, Coach and I are taking our victory lap for the Atlanta Braves' improbable, incredible 2021 World Series championship. Um, if you've listened to the podcast before, uh, you know that Coach and I are lifelong Atlanteans. We're both from here. Uh, we've lived here most of our lives collectively. Uh, huge Braves fans through and through. At one point, we thought this was going to be a Braves-only podcast back when. So needless to say, this postseason run was magical, improbable, relief, all the good things. So we're finally going to talk about it. We recorded this show just before Thanksgiving. So there's a couple of elements that will sound a little bit dated. Clayton is great. He's a good friend of the show. His book's phenomenal. If you have any connection to Atlanta, it's a great read. But as he talks about on the podcast, it's really more about how cities go after sports teams and the politics involved and the finagling involved and the sort of civic mindedness mixed with capitalism. I mean, it's it's a fascinating read just as a fan of sports in general and the relationship between pro sports and a city. So there you have it. And first... Mr. David Wayne Welcome baseball fans to the Running the Bases podcast. I'm Tucker Wells, joined as always by coach Jordan Bounds, and we have with us today none other than Mr. Clayton Trudor, wonderful author, teacher, history buff, baseball fan. He is the author of a new book, Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. It is available for pre-order on Amazon.com, and it is going to be uh, released on February 1st of next year. So Clayton, Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure being back. Yeah, absolutely. And Coach, how are you doing, by the way? Oh, I'm doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't mean to skip over you. Yeah, but. that's all right. That's all right. So we're going to talk with Clayton. We're going to talk about his book. And then Coach and I will uh, effuse profoundly and shamelessly about the Braves' recent uh, World Series championship. So, And let's just jump right in. Clayton, talk about this book, Loserville. Uh, talk specifically about... Uh, where you got the idea and why you wanted to write this book. I got the idea when I was in graduate school. I did a PhD in U.S. history. My area of expertise is American urban history and the history of American culture. And I wanted to write about the impact of professional sports franchise relocations on American cities. Initially, I wanted to do it in a very broad sense. My advisor told me that will take you 70 years. Pick a particular city that's emblematic of the shifts that, uh, that happened in pro sports and the impact they had on the nation's economics, culture, and politics. And there was no city better than Atlanta, which in many ways pioneered the path that so many other communities have taken as they've tried to become major league cities themselves. Right. And, and so the book really focuses in on, you know, Atlanta and the, the, the players and the personnel and the mayor and everyone involved to get those first sports franchises to Atlanta, the Braves in 65, 66, then the Falcons as an expansion team Hawks. And then the, uh, the, uh, oft maligned Atlanta flames. So you really covered how you cover basically as far as sports history goes from mid early mid sixties until about the mid seventies. Yeah, roughly. I mean, essentially the book ends when Ted Turner takes over the Braves and the Hawks. I touch on that in the later chapters, but the main thrust of the book is the pursuit of teams, their arrival in town, and then the response to all of these new teams coming basically simultaneously to the community. And how this became a, uh, a, a format for other cities to bring in major league teams as well. Absolutely. Yes. Certainly, whether it's Tampa or Phoenix or Houston or San Diego, so many other cities emulated the corporate um, promotional campaign Atlanta took on and also the offers of public expenditure that Atlanta offered uh, teams to come to town. 
And so again, really for you, it was a fascination with franchise relocation and development. And then that brought you to Atlanta. Yeah, I considered other cities, but it, but it, it just kept leading back to Atlanta every time I tried to figure out how this whole story happened. I mean, in many in many ways, Atlanta is the, the starting point for a lot of these changes. More than 60% of the franchise relocations in the four major sports have happened since Atlanta got its teams. There's been a rapid expansion of all of the leagues since then. Atlanta kind of shows that it's possible for, for cities to go from not being a major league community to competing with the likes of New York and Chicago and Philadelphia and Los Angeles. Yet in the same vein, so much of uh, like what Ivan Allen's uh, his goal was and everything failed. I mean, uh, the, the idea that it was going to become uh, this—I forgot what your term was—but uh, the uh, like a, that that uh, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium would become center of the, gravity. Yeah, the center of gravity and stuff, and that uh, everybody would. Uh, that really never happened, and it didn't uh, bring in the economic boom that uh, Ivan Allen and all, and all the big mules thought it would bring on. Yes, I think in some ways it was kind of a teaspoon against the ocean in the right. sense that the trajectory of the region was already going for rapid suburbanization. By 1970, more than three-quarters of the region's population lived outside of the city of Atlanta. Now it's well under 10%. So it's, it's, it's competing against significant economic and social trends in the region already. Right. And so to set the table for people who are going to be getting this story for the first time about this push and this process to get professional sports to Atlanta, Ivan Allen is the mayor at the time, and Atlanta is a growing post-World War II metropolis. Um, there are no professional sports east of the Mississippi River and south of the Mason-Dixie line. Talk about, you referenced the big mules, and that was a term for basically like the big business packers in the city of Atlanta at the time. Why were major league sports important to Atlanta specifically? Yeah, the big mules is a term that came into existence in the late 1950s. It was referenced in an article in Fortune magazine and became more broadly used in the press. Essentially, it refers to Atlanta's corporate establishment. And by the early 1960s, Atlanta had this reputation as an economic hub for the region, whether it was in terms of transportation or banking or finance. And Atlanta was looking for a cultural position that was comparable to its economic role nationally. And when Ivan Allen comes in, he, he runs for mayor on a platform called Forward Atlanta, which is modeled after a previous promotional campaign for the city that his father, Ivan Allen Sr., had, had engineered in the 1920s. And a, a huge plank in this platform is called Major League City, the idea that Atlanta should seek out these institutions both as a source of civic pride, a source of prestige, and also as a place that's as something of a center of gravity for the, the metropolitan region. And uh, he, he, Allen had been the head of the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce and is able to persuade many of the people who, who were already kind of thinking in this direction, people like Mills Lane, who was in banking, people like Arthur Montgomery, who is the Coca-Cola bottler in town, to, to, to get involved and get on board with this process. And Atlanta very quickly uh, lures teams from the four major professional sports and builds Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And the city also helps to finance what becomes the Omni Coliseum downtown. Uh, the corporate establishment uh, and political leadership are instrumental in this push. They, Atlanta had always been very good at rolling out the red carpet to lure factories from other parts of the country, to lure branch plants of large corporations. They essentially took this business model and brought it to pro sports in a way that nobody had done before. Certainly, there have been relocations, you know, obviously the Dodgers and the Giants and other very prominent ones, but those were more one-off kind of situations. What Atlanta had was a, was a highly orchestrated campaign to bring all of the major league sports to town. In, if you look at a lot of the other southern cities, like let's say New Orleans with the, uh, with, the, with the Superdome, with Houston with the Astrodome, when they brought in pro sports, they were almost as interested in bringing in a prestigious building as much as anything, this building that would be itself a showpiece for, for town. Atlanta's focus is a little bit less on that than the other communities, I would say. They're more interested in the idea of being major league, of being in the standings alongside the other important cities in the country. And they're very successful at this. Uh, Fulton County Stadium is never the showpiece that the Superdome or the Astrodome is. I think the Omni certainly, in, in, in terms of name, had, had more of those kind of aspirations. The general manager of the Omni, Bill Putnam, is the one who comes up with this. He'd previously done the Great Western Forum and the Spectrum and had all these very grandiose named arenas he'd helped put in place. But even the Omni, I don't think, had quite the sense of spectacle that the Superdome or the Astrodome did in size or scale. 
So Atlanta was very invested in the idea of becoming a major league community from the early 1960s onward. And by the early 1970s achieved this. They became the ninth city in North America to uh, host teams from all four of the major professional sports leagues. I'll say as a fan here, I liked the way the Omni looked when it was built. The uh, you referred to the uh, the rooftops, you know, the kind of copper looking uh, triangular mm-hmm. rooftops and stuff. Uh, and I um, I always disliked the way Atlanta Fulton County Stadium looked uh, for obvious reasons. And mm-hmm. but uh, the um, there was there was some pride in the Omni a little bit for being a little bit different. Coach. Absolutely. And, and everyone I spoke with talked about it being a very comfortable venue inside. I remember one of the people I interviewed for the book was the head of the Flames fan club. And he was a six foot four guy and talked about how it was the most comfortable arena of its type he'd ever been in with a nice plush theater seat, some room to stretch out. He'd been to the Boston Garden and Madison Square Garden and stuff and saw how uncomfortable those places were by comparison. But then we were also going from uh, Alexander Memorial Coliseum to to the Omni. That was a big <laughs> right. jump. Right. <laughs> Yeah, from the uh, the college level Thunderdome to an actual uh, <laughs> ten thousand plus seat arena or fourteen thousand plus seat arena, uh, Coach. Let me ask you because you lived through everything that is uh, laid out in this book, Clayton. One of the things that you really uh, you know bring out that's very important is how the stadium was was gonna be this jewel, and there was like starting with trying to court the Kansas City A's and uh, their mercurial owner uh, Charlie Finley where the stadium was going to go was going to be so essential to how Atlanta was going to draw these sports teams to the city and to the South. And in fact, uh, one of your chapters is titled, uh, I've got the greatest location in the world. That was Furman Bishard that said that, wasn't it? Well, uh, Charlie Finley said it. Okay. uh, All right. uh, Furman uh, Furman Bishard was involved. Two Bishard. Yeah. Yeah. So the stadium finally gets built and coach, what was your reaction when you first saw an event at at the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium? Uh, was it the jewel that you were promised? I really was not. Uh, let me see. What I was I was in the ninth grade, uh, so I wasn't really thinking of the stadium so much. I was able to see major league ball players for the first time. You know that was. Uh, I mean, in my hometown, I had been to some games outside, been to some World Series games outside, but uh, that was the, uh, I mean, and and actually, and I, we, we've talked about this before. I was a Braves fan before they moved here. So, you know, it was a, um, this was like ecstasy for me. Uh, I didn't like the fact, I know the first game went to, a friend of mine and I went to the stadium and we, we of course, got downtown by about... Uh, and this is the first night, though, you know, when they played the Pirates and everything. And we were downtown about 11 o'clock in the morning. And uh, by about right around rush hour, we started to get to the stadium. We didn't know how to get there. And we're running across the interstate. And <laughs> 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 no, it, it was I, I didn't care about the stadium. It was too far away. That was the only, you know, but I, it was close, you know, still the right. same. It was oxymoronic. Well, this I is think also a lot of the criticisms people levied towards the that generation of stadiums, people didn't feel that at the time. They thought it in retrospect. The intimacy people craved in ballparks, the kind of brick-and-mortar ballpark where you're two feet away from the players, that kind of seemed old-fashioned in the 1960s. If you read articles from the time period, a lot of people really craved the kind of modern-look stadiums had, I think really starting with Dodger Stadium and then being then evolving into the other uh, multi-purpose stadiums which come afterwards. So, so the idea that people wanted this kind of Wrigley Field, Fenway Park type experience, I think it's something that happens later on if it's more of a product of nostalgia for something that was disappearing as opposed to something that was very new in the 1960s, which they had at Atlanta, Fulton County Stadium, Veteran Stadium, Three Rivers, many other ballparks. Yeah, all, yeah there were about 10 of them or so. Uh, I think uh, Camden Yards actually changed all of that. People. Yes, I, I was the, the other day I was talking about Camden Yards, and I said, in my mind, it's still one of the new parks, even though it's like 30 years old right, right, or something. Right. Uh, one thing that that Atlanta brings to to the consensus is building a stadium before you have a team. I feel like this is an underappreciated uh, black mark war- watershed moment uh, in sports history. But why was that never considered or or hadn't been considered until um, until Atlanta in the sixties? Well, I would say I would say primarily because cities hadn't played such a prominent role in stadium building. Before World War II, there was relatively little public expenditure in terms of stadiums. If teams did play in publicly owned buildings, it was because 
city had already built it for some other purpose. The team just happened to end up settling down there. The idea of cities playing this prominent role in investing in it is something that Atlanta really, really helped build um, a consensus around during the 1960s. So I, th- I think it really results from that as much as anything. Right, right. For the writers out there, talk about your your process in doing this kind of research about a city that you hadn't grown up in, right? Yeah, I had no connection to. I, I had an uncle who lived in Marietta for a few years. He where he got transferred. Like many people, got transferred to Atlanta and worked there for a few years. I'd been down a couple times as a little kid, but I had no real connection to Atlanta whatsoever. Um, the first thing I did is I sat down and started going through microfilms uh, at my the. The library at my college, thankfully, had the Atlantic Constitution, so I was able to go through that. Um, I, I drove to, an, to uh, across town to another college library that had the journal. Uh, I went elsewhere for the Daily World. Um, I, I, sp- I spent a lot of time just on microfilm machines, just going through day by day through the 60s and 70s. That took me roughly a year to do that one part of the process. Um, thankfully, I was in grad school and I was employed teaching and stuff at the time and uh, could find time a lot of evenings to do it. But it's a it's a very grueling process. Uh, I was also researching some other cities, too, to have a, a frame of reference as well, just, just through the microfilm. So I started doing that. And I spent some time in Atlanta doing research at some of the archives down there at Emory, at the Atlanta History Center. Um, I also uh, I, I interviewed a lot of people from from the region. Uh, I, I certainly interviewed some, some people who were politicians, some athletes. But I think most importantly, I spoke with a lot of fans from the time period to get their sense of these things. I spoke with roughly 30 or so people who had been fans throughout this time period just to get a feel for their their sense of all of these things. Uh, which was a big help to getting moving beyond the box score and just getting a sense of the actual experience of supporting these teams or choosing not to support these teams over time. I, I spoke with people who, for example, were, were rabid Falcons fans in the early years, but then their interest faded as, as the Falcons continued to struggle. So, so, that, so that was certainly a big part of it. Um, also, just getting to know Atlanta better, too, was a big part of it for me. I spent, I spent a significant amount of time in the city simply just driving around Taking martyr around, just getting a feel for the feel for the community and the people in Atlanta. I, to me, that's an important part of the story too. Just as a matter of showing respect to the to the place I'm talking about, the people I'm talking about. I, I went to great lengths to try to to try to to get a feel for the uh, for the uh, for the place. I I personally think uh, you have a, a tremendous understanding of Atlanta uh, and of or a feel for Atlanta. There were so many things that you bring out in the book: the Jesse Outler shooting, uh, the failures of Marta to expand into a different place. That kind of cut the. You have a common denominator of race as in issue throughout the book, uh, as it has always been a common denominator in Atlanta. Uh, the, I mean, even Ivan Allen's, uh, you know, the Atlanta being too busy to hate. You, you mentioned how in the Summerhill riots, how he's sitting on, or he's standing on top of a car. The, um, I, I remember the same when Martin Luther King was shot, Ivan Allen going down to Auburn Avenue and standing on top of a car mm-hmm. and uh, with the megaphone and dre- addressing everybody. Uh, this is so much a part of Atlanta. Race is always, uh, it's just part of the story in uh, every t- everything in Atlanta. The uh, the shame of Lester Maddox is like, yeah. you know, th- that was just such a, an incredible time. I mean, uh, and, and I think to me, as an outsider, it's just remarkable what Atlanta was able to do throughout the Hartsfield and Allen periods and into Sam Massell having this biracial governing coalition um, within the Jim Crow South is, was an incredible thing. And I, and I think it's uh, looking back, it may be, it may be um, tough to recognize what a significant thing they accomplished during this time period. And, and certainly over the course of this book, we see the fracturing of this into the into the black political power base in the city and then a predominantly white suburban power base as well. And it made it very difficult to have, uh, I guess, issues of uh, metropolitan area consensus as a result of this. And I think in some ways that also plays a role in terms of uh, fracturing support for these teams as well, that this very highly suburbanized population in many ways doesn't want much to do with the city. And the teams are certainly a part of the city. You you mentioned how after doing microfilm research and just pouring through all the different articles um, that you had your your interviews. Um, did you get everybody on your wish list? Was there was there a particular interview? Honestly, that... most of most of the people on my wish list are dead. Yeah, I was going to say most of them look at their years ago. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the first person I would have wanted to talk to is probably Ivan Allen, but he you know he died in the late you know early two thousands, I guess. Um, speaking with Sam Massel, we spoke for like. 
three hours or something. That was just a fantastic interview. He had such a broad view of all these things. I have great admiration for his work for his work as mayor, also in particular with the Omni Arena, because he got the city a much better deal in terms of the financing. Certainly the stadium authority helps to finance this, but really Cousins and company end up paying for the vast majority of that arena over time. Much better deal than, than they have with Landfold County Stadium. And uh, he did a great job with that. I think also he was his push for Marta was a very impressive thing too. Certainly was a, a force for uh, metropolitan consensus amid a lot of different divergences. Um, I spoke with a lot of different, I mean, spoke with Ron Reed, had a nice conversation with Ron Reed. It was very helpful, very, very, very pleasant. Just quoted a few times in the book. Bill Clement from the Flames, boy, I mean, certainly he's a, you know, a guy who's a sportscaster, but just the man was just born to give sound bites for books. He was just, just fantastic. Every, everything he said was, I could have put every single thing he said in the book. Um, uh, speaking with Tommy Novus before he passed away was a, was a, a great honor and very Tommy. helpful too. Yeah, yeah, he went to my church. Oh wow! He played putt putt at the putt putt golf course that I that I used to run. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> it's a little while ago. <laughs> he wanted to buy the place. Yes, if I he remember did. Yeah, correctly. that's what he said. <laughs> um, was there was there somebody you know living? Uh, that was on. I, mean, your... I would have loved to speak with yeah. Hank Aaron and Ted Turner. I would have liked to spot or speak to. I mean, I, 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 I was unable to speak to either for the project. I, you know, I certainly would still love to talk to Ted. But uh, you mentioned briefly the Chiefs in there. Did you speak to Phil Woosnam? I wasn't able to get in contact with him. I tried a couple of times, but I, I, right. I tried. I had a couple of people I had, who had connections with the, with the NASL, and I just uh, for whatever reason couldn't get in touch with him. Right. Which is the soccer league, right? And that was yes. Uh, so yep. the Atlanta Chiefs of the NASL soccer league, technically right. or or truly, won the first professional championship in the Before, history of yeah. Atlanta. Right. So you've written books before for Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research. Kind of compare the process of doing those books, like the the history of the Tony Canigliaro Award. Compare that to doing uh, this book. Well, I mean, I served as an editor for that book, so that was as much shepherding a lot of the articles into being as it was writing. I mean, I certainly wrote a number of those. I wrote the introduction, and I helped create the concept for that book. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of the time commitment, it was a very, very, very different thing. I mean, the Tony Canigliaro book was essentially a, a 10-month venture, I would say, between idea, getting people together in Sabre to write the articles, which was people are incredibly generous with their time in the organization, writing these for, for no compensation. Um, in, in terms of writing this book, this is a 10-year process for me. I, 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 I needed to come up with a dissertation topic in the spring of 2011. Um, that's when I first got the idea about writing about franchise relocations. Uh, I have focused, started focusing in on Atlanta in 2012. Um, I wrote the dissertation over the next few years, and it took a few years to go from being a dissertation to a book. I mean, a dissertation is a very different field than a book, and trying to make it, I mean, one of the, I, I, the books had a couple of reviews already, and I think the, the thing I'm happiest about is people said it doesn't feel like an academic book. I mean, obviously, there's there's elements of it. That, that there's going to be elements of that architecture to it, but as much as anything, I want to tell a story, and, and the less it seems like a dissertation, uh, the better, although I'm sure there are some elements that I can't see because I've just spent so much time with it that I'm blind to that have that feel to it. I've read a lot of dissertations. Uh, this does not read like a dissertation. Uh, I've read more books and I have dissertations, but uh, no, it does not read like a dissertation. Now, granted, I, I, I am the, the captive audience for this. I mean, uh, if everybody was my age and lived in Atlanta, you'd become, you know, you would become the next John Grisham. <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> right. And I mean, you know, if you take that population, which you, you, that's at least a million books sold. Oh, I don't know. There are a million people my age. Sure. In, well, a, that in a, Atlanta? Yeah, that have Atlanta, you know. I mean, maybe they've okay. moved away. Yeah, okay. Right. I'm, I'm being, you know, I'm being optimistic, but that's <laughs> that's how we have to be in this day and age. Um, I, I got a question. Yeah. Uh, the uh, In all of the research, and who is the biggest villain? Who, who is the biggest villain? Right. Um, who did more to hurt Atlanta sports than... Lester Maddox. Okay. Okay. I mean, he just, he, what, what a buffoon. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and just in terms, I mean, he, Atlanta was able to get pro sports because of the reputation it had built as being a progressive oasis in the South. He did everything he possibly could at every turn to, uh, to, to, to try to, to try to hurt that reputation. I don't think he really gave a hoot about sports one way or the other, but just having him, you know, at, you know, at the pickrick doing what he's doing and then, you know, being in the way he was as governor and everything, it, it, it really, 
boy, he put Atlanta in a bad position over and over again. And he certainly showed that Atlanta was was a, was a place within the state of Georgia, not not simply its own thing, which I think in many ways the city leaders wanted to present it that way as being being apart from from some of the 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 uh, ugliness that, uh, that that was elsewhere going on in the uh, in the state in the region. Um, yeah, I think I, yeah, I, I guess he would be. Um, Beyond that, I don't see there being a lot of villains in the book. Um, I, I, I think there's people who, you know, may have there may have been some naivety here and there. I mean, in terms of Atlanta civic leaders, I think they nobody really done what they did before. I, I have a lot of admiration for their tenacity in getting this through. Uh, I mean, I guess the idea of taking land that, that was owned, that was going to be designated for affordable housing and turning it into a stadium, I'm not too fond of that, but there's a lot of authors to that. I don't know that any one person is the particular villain of that aspect Right, of the and story, you, you pointed out how even the black leaders at that time supported that uh, decision at the time. I mean, it was not, uh, that was kind of a universally accepted uh, action. Yeah, and, and 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 I think part of that is is the the city's black leadership liked the idea of being a significant part in any major civic decision. Right, and right. by being such strong boosters of it, they were certainly a part of the coalition that, that helped make that possible and and spoke on very uh, enthusiastically for it. Right. Uh, what are your feelings about Rankin Smith? He, he's I, I, the players. I well, spoke we with need all to tee, him personally. We need, we need to tee this up. He's the owner of the Falcons. Anyway, oh, I, I jumped Rankin in on the question. Rankin yeah. Smith in 1965 gets convinced by his fraternity brother from the University of Georgia, Carl Sanders, who's the governor at the time, to get involved with buying the NFL team there. He ends up paying twice as much for the team as he expected initially. Um, Smith is very much an amateur owner. He's very much an owner of his generation who'd been very successful in his insurance business, but was certainly not a football expert. And I think Rankin Smith provides an example that future teams have uh, hopefully uh, learned from that you need football <laughs> experts or basketball or hockey or baseball experts in place run an organization. It's a very particular and specific business. And the the Falcons, the Falcons struggled for basically, except for a couple of years, the the first quarter century they were in town. Right. You and you um, mentioned and how Mike Ken uh when they took out the general manager who knew football and uh, brought in another businessman that just turned the team right around again. Yeah. I mean, the people, I think people tended to like Rankin Smith personally and they got along with his family. I think they were friendly and easy to deal with. They just weren't football people in it. And it showed on the field. Um, I mean, yeah, the Eddie LeBaron era was very successful in the late seventies and early eighties, but uh, it, uh, you know, you need people who, who know the sport in charge. And, and, and in my later chapters, I go into a little bit other cities that, um, that followed Atlanta into the big leagues and suffered from some of the same problems too. Um, but if you look at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Hugh Culverhouse, who was their owner, he was a he was Richard Nixon's tax attorney, among other things. He was a very well-heeled guy. Um, he went out and he got John McKay from USC, certainly a qualified coach. He got Ron Wolf, who later won Super Bowls with the Packers as general manager, and they still struggled. They were even worse than the Falcons were in their early years. So it's 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 a very tough and specific business to get into. There was a, a perception in the early years of the Falcons that, and I don't think you touched on this, but that the Falcons would draft people that they could sign easily because of uh, going against the AFL, and that often. Uh, Rankin Smith was trying to cut corners. This was when uh, you mentioned how he was having IRS problems at one time. And, uh, and this was kind of a general perception that we would draft a Joe Prophet who was a third round draft pick. We would draft him in the first round because he was more affordable uh, and that this it was a business de- decision, never a football decision along those lines. But Well, following up on that, I think it was the most difficult era ever to be an expansion NFL team because the talent pool was so sapped by the competing league that actually had a much wealthier group of owners, all these oil right, barons right. and the like who owned AFL teams. It, it put the put NFL expansion teams such as the Falcons and the Saints in an incredibly bad position, uh, and both of those places had to compete in foot, foot, football mad markets anyway. Where the 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 Sunday game is the third the third most interesting game of the week to a lot of people. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, well, two things. One, Rankin Smith is uh, to the football fans here the big villain. Yeah. <laughs> we are we are not partial. Great that people got along with his family, but um, the other was that the biggest hindrance to the Falcons 
and you laid this out in the book really well, is college football at that time. Both Georgia Tech and Georgia in the 60s are college football powerhouses. And after Saturday, yeah, who who, who wanted I mean, to go even see when an Tech expansion struggled. franchise? I mean, even when Tech struggled, Pepper Rogers was an interesting, compelling guy, and uh, he still drew very well in spite of having some struggles in the, uh, in the 1970s. Yeah. Yep. They have issues drawing well right now, <laughs> unfortunately. Oh, yes. oh yeah. I, I saw the game against BC a couple of weeks ago, and you could have shot a cannon through the place and not hurt anybody. Oh, my God. I, I mean, they're playing Georgia on Saturday. That place is going to be completely red. And, yes. <laughs> and that, that hurts my feelings because I'm more of a Tech fan than a UGA fan, mm-hmm. but never had a true dog in the fight, pun intended. <laughs> um, well, let's talk real quick about difficulties with expansion cities in general with building the support for for new teams that come to a new major league city here atlanta has has swung and missed on two hockey teams not one but two nhl franchises with the flames that you talk about and you actually talk very positively about the atlanta flames which i find interesting um and then of course we lost the thrashers uh in the 2000s um you see though like las vegas they knocked it out of the park with their hockey team there nashville with their hockey team the diamondbacks you know they just dumped a ton of money into free agents right off the bat so that there was randy johnson there in the second year that they were in operation talk about those difficulties that you found through research that you're going to say how how to and how not to build support for expansion teams how is that done best it's done best by taking your time getting teams. Atlanta's teams were just poaching off one another because they had so much so soon. And it's not like people ceased being interested in the local sporting culture, whether it was participatory sports or spectator sports. Otherwise, people still went boating. People were still golfing. They were still playing tennis. Um, people were still going to watch professional wrestling or still watching auto racing. People were obviously still watching watching all kinds of amateur athletics at the high school and lower levels, they're watching high school football, they're watching college football. Those things all remained popular in spite of teams with Atlanta across their chest being in town. So I, I think competing with a, an existing sporting culture, particularly in the Sun Belt, um, where, where people can play outside for much of the year and have a great time, is a very difficult uh, is, a, is a very difficult thing to do. San Diego and many ways faced much many of the same problems having to compete with the beach all year was a very difficult thing for the region having to compete with the kind of person who could afford a season ticket is the kind of person who's going to buy a boat to whether you know whether it's in georgia you know you know play around the lakes or play in the ocean out in uh, southern california it's 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 a tough it's a tough situation um in terms of drawing consistently fans that already have existing lifestyle preferences and passions before teams get to town and then getting so many teams so quickly, it's an incredibly difficult thing to succeed. In some ways, I think Phoenix did it best. And I think it's essentially accidentally. They, they end up getting a, um, they end up getting the, the Suns long before they get any of the teams in the other major professional sporting leagues. And um, as a result, um, the, the Suns build strong support, um, both on the court and in the stands. They have an excellent owner and Jerry, owner and general manager, Jerry Colangelo, and they um, they're very successful as a result. Um, other Phoenix teams come much later and have their struggles certainly, but uh, having one team first uh, and giving them some time to to prosper seems like the way to go. If one can look, you know, from you know from a couple miles away at the situation. How much do you think? the location of Atlanta Fulton County Stadium hurt uh, the early successes uh, of both teams, both the Braves and the Falcons. Oh, I think it played a significant role in it, particularly as the region became more and more suburbanized. It became a chore to get to the games for a lot of people. You have to drive in to go to work and then drive back out and then drive back in with your family, particularly on a hot July or August night in Georgia, you know, sitting in the stands at Fulton County Stadium may not have been the most attractive thing, especially when the team was struggling. So I think particularly for the Braves, who have baseball, you have such a long season, uh, so many home dates. I think I think it's particularly difficult in that regard. Um, whether it would have been more successful in other parts of town, around the suburbs, I think it's tough to say. I mean, I think maybe the Lakewood Park uh, track area, which was one of Ivan Allen's suggestions, might have been a little better, more on the outskirts of town. But... Um, I don't know. I think I think it's tough. To, there probably would have been other situations that came up with any other location, particularly in the in the core of the metropolitan area, uh, if a stadium got built in that time period. I don't think Lakewood would have been a better uh, 
situation. When they have races out there now, they have traffic jams for uh, hours and hours with people trying to get out. And a, a large crowd just does on one expressway just doesn't work there. Uh, I think I, do, I defer to your local expertise on that completely. Yeah, uh, but I, I do think I. There's a, a noticeable difference now that they have moved uh, into Cobb County. Uh, the energy level there is just so much higher than it ever was downtown. Well, and to your point also about MARTA, which I'm a huge proponent of how public transportation getting to a sporting event is so key to a team's success. With the Falcons, and Coach and I were talking about this before we started the podcast here, that when the Falcons moved to the Georgia Dome, which is right off of the MARTA rail line, suddenly they had support and they had support Mm -hmm. from the African-American community, which they hadn't had before. Yeah. And I talk, well, and I think it corresponds also with the expansion of Atlanta's black middle-class really beginning in the 1980s. And and you, you see a correspondence in that, particularly with support for the Hawks with the Dominic Wilkins, Spud Webb, Mike Fratello era. And also with the Falcons, too, the growing um, live support they had from African-American fans, I think corresponds with more um, more, more black residents having having enough discretionary income to support those teams. And they're able to support um, activities in which they were interested. Absolutely. Uh, I want to change uh, this totally different uh, – something you bring up in the book that I uh, found interesting. Uh, how much of a detriment was Pete Maravich to the Hawks? You know, I think he was put in a really bad situation. I mean, they they completely blown up their roster. They're trying to rebuild around him. I mean, obviously there was there was racial overtones to say the least about the whole thing. He's going to be this white Southern superstar. They're going to build the team around. The team was already an excellent team. They'd been to the conference finals two consecutive years. A tough defense, a very gritty style of play. Uh, but they got completely blown up and. It was really uh, the, the Hawks were very tough with contract negotiations early on when they're in town. Yeah. That's all why they sudden, got blown up. That's, they, I mean, yeah. they all left. And all of a sudden, Pete Maravich is the highest paid player in basketball. So I think Maravich was in a very tough situation with his teammates. And essentially, Maravich was just there to be a show. And um, it, it didn't turn out quite as expected. And his stay in town was... Uh, was relatively short-lived and I think a lot more unpleasant than people would have expected. And the Hawks just really didn't gain a foothold in town as they figured Maravich would help them do. Uh, strangely, even though the Hawks continued to draw poorly when Maravich was in town, the Hawks were the best drawing road team in the league on a couple of occasions when he was in Atlanta because people all around the country wanted to go see Pete Maravich play right. in person because unless you're an SEC country, the number of people who got to see Pete Maravich play in college in person was pretty small. Right, right. You have a lot of love for Ted Turner. Um, is he the hero of the book? Would you say, in some yes, respects? Yeah, there's a yeah. I, I think I think he is because he helps keep Atlanta major league. Certainly, there's an aspect of self interest to it that it provided inexpensive, consistent programming for his television empire. But he also struggles through many very difficult years with the Hawks and the Braves. Some of that's because he doesn't have the right guys in place yet to uh, to build winning teams. Turner is a very committed, civically-minded capitalist throughout this time period. And I I wrote a piece for the blog on the uh, University of Nebraska website, who's the publisher for the book, crediting Turner to no small extent for this championship. But there may not have been a team in town uh, to win a championship without Ted Turner's uh, intervention. The Braves had talked about moving to Toronto. There was the possibility of splitting games with New Orleans in this time period. Turner's the guy who keeps the team in town and... uh, goes from having a very bad ownership situation to having a very stable one for uh, more than a generation. There's a reason Turner Field was called Turner Field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very true. Absolutely. I mean, as you're doing your research, and I don't want to give away, you know, where you um, guide the narrative of the book, um, but how close was Atlanta in the in that first decade of having teams to losing those teams? Because obviously the Flames are gone in 1980. I mean, how close were we to how close was Atlanta to losing those other franchises that they had worked so hard and bent over backwards to get here? I think it's more likely than not that both the Braves and Hawks would have left town. I mean, they're just I mean, Cousins was looking around for a corporate sponsor for the Flames. That doesn't really happen to be to take over the team. They end up leaving town when they get a great offer from some Alberta oilmen who want a team for the new arena they're building up there for the 88 Olympics. In the case, in the case of the Hawks, um, Turner was really the only guy who stepped forward. 
Uh, and he's paying a, a, a he ended up paying a couple million dollars less than was the going rate for an NBA franchise at the time in 1977 when he buys the team. So I think I mean I think Rankin Smith would have would have kept going, and in some ways he might have liked it. He would have had Atlanta Fulton County Stadium to himself himself if the Braves left. But uh, yeah, it could have ended up being a one team town um, by the by the end of the 1970s. Wow. How about that? <laughs> oh, I know. I, I, I've known that. I've, um, I've always admired Ted Turner for that. Yeah. You know, again, we said at the, the top of the show how Coach and I are your exact target captive audience. Make the pitch to people who um, who aren't you know familiar with Atlanta and Atlanta sports or who aren't Atlanta sports fans about what they'll get out of uh, reading your book. This is the origin story for the modern sports business. The way that cities play with leagues the way they compete for franchises, it all starts in this book. Essentially, everyone has either modeled themselves after Atlanta in terms of trying to get the big leagues or has had to compete with Atlanta and other cities like it to keep their teams. So whether you live in a northern city like, like Baltimore or Boston or Philadelphia or Detroit, who's had to fight to keep their teams, or you live in a sunbelt city like Tampa or Atlanta or San Diego or Phoenix, you, you can see the experience of your own city through this book. I've spoken with a lot of different Sabre chapters in different cities, and I've had many people tell me this so closely resembles our experience in town. So many people can see the, 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 the experiences of their own communities trying to become major league or stay major league in the story of Atlanta in the 1960s and 1970s. Yeah, and, and, and really, yeah, it's, it's a great, you know, you were doing the Netflix documentary series. This is the origin story. Coach, what else do you have? Uh, I there there's so many points in the book that i i found terribly interesting uh i one thing i didn't know uh was that maybe i knew it and i i have forgotten it in my feebleness uh but <laughs> when you were talking about when rico cardi and his brother were beat up after coming back from a barbecue restaurant you mentioned i knew that cardi was a boxer but i didn't know that he had gotten in a fight with hank aaron on a plane well, that's according to Milo Hamilton. That's 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 where that story comes. A couple of other people uh, made reference to that too. Milo made reference to it in his memoir. I I, I had the pleasure of speaking with him, and uh, he 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 didn't deny it. And uh, and I heard from a couple of other people about that story as well. I dated a girl in high school whose brother, who I knew, dated uh, Milo Hamilton's daughter, and I went over to his house oh, wow. a lot in those days. Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah. It was not that big a deal. The, uh, yeah, yeah you, want, you want you want to talk? You want to? I mean, the Astros organization's gotten a lot of flack in recent years. Yeah, you want to talk about an efficient working organization? When I wanted to speak with Milo, I I, I called the the Astros probably in 2014 or 2015 or so, and I, because he most recently worked for them, right. and I asked if they could put me in touch with him. Within an hour, Milo Hamilton gave me a phone call. Wow. to talk about whatever we chatted for like two hours he was he was great he couldn't have been more helpful yeah i know he had a trophy room that even his wife didn't have the key to <laughs> <laughs> i i know nothing else that's just picking this up as a 10th grader who's over there <laughs> so you can interview coach for the follow-up to this for some of the absolutely the, the underbelly nightlife stories going on at the time <laughs> from, from a 10th grade perspective well on up you know you weren't yeah. in 10th grade for forever no no they're just incidental points i uh there were so many things uh i when he's talking about the annexation of Sandy Springs, we've grown up in Sandy Springs. Uh, and I don't, I don't know exactly when that happened, but I, uh, that was something that uh, it was interesting reading this. So many of the little points mention uh, the Summerhill riots and uh, things of this nature, which I, I kind of put in the back of my mind. All of that kind of came to uh, fruition again uh, in reading this. And I, I do like the way everything was... Uh, laid out chronologically in a a way that it helped me remember so many of these points. Um, the uh, I had forgot about the cosmic carnival. You know, uh, you, uh, well, that, I saw Allman Brothers. There were a bunch of people there. Um, I did. I was there at the Beatles concert that night. All thirty-five minutes of it. Um, uh, but the um, I don't know. So much of this I, I just enjoy because it was like reliving my own past. Well, I'll tell you, the original draft was eight hundred pages, but they had me. Uh, wow. They thought I should cut it down a little bit. Uh, yeah, I don't. Yeah, eight hundred pages. You would have to have me reading it. <laughs> so it's only five hundred or whatever now. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I do. Th uh, I will say you, you would talk about how uh, Ted Turner is the hero. 
also see Ivan Allen as somewhat of a hero too. In this I agree. Movie. Absolutely. Uh, the uh, I don't know that, uh, and thankfully we didn't get Finley as our first owner. Right. Oh yeah. my lord! Yes. Because they would have been gone. He took all those pains to Oakland. Uh, also, the failures of Marta, or the failures of Marta to extend in other parts of the city and stuff. Uh, so much of that is a racial element to the book, but uh, it was that has a lot to do with the the early failures of the team or their their failures to draw well. Yeah, which I I echo. That's always to me been the biggest um, hindrance to. Full Atlanta support of the Braves long term at that at that site, and you know they were promised right. Like the Braves were always promised a battery type development, and mm-hmm. towards the end of the book, you get into that. You know the circumstances around the Braves move out to um, Cobb County where they are now. Part of the thing too, uh, Ivan Allen. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned this in the book, but he had to make a with the taxi lobby here, he had to have, there was an agreement that there would not be a Marta stop at the stadium. It couldn't be within. I, did, I didn't mention that. I was aware of it, but yeah, I, I don't think I mentioned that. Right. Uh, which I think, I mean, he, I, I'm not certain why he had to do that. There weren't a whole lot of people taking taxis to the ball game, uh, but uh, <laughs> leaving maybe. Right. Uh, but not having a Marta stop at the stadium hurt. Yeah. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah, especially when you look at you know how when the Nationals built their stadium and what in D.C. how they put it right on the Metro line. Well, so, I mean, I mean that's uh, so all of your North. I mean, think Yankee Stadium. You know, you just yeah. right. You know, right there, Chicago. Yeah, Fenway, all that. Yeah, yeah. The public transportation element and how that you know, how that hinders support and development for you know. The, the sports teams is such a key part of this book and such a key part for anybody who's involved in in civics i really appreciate it. it does not read like a textbook but i really appreciate the history of civics and civic engineering when it comes to leadership trying to grow a city to a certain image to a certain prominence um i, I want to ask uh, another question uh the you, and when you're mentioning the uh, the big mules and everything at the beginning of the stuff, you you talk about Woodruff a couple of times, but it was my perception that nothing got done in this city unless Woodruff kind of okayed it. Uh, I mean, that was my you know, that's my perception as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he certainly is in, is you know kind of a bit a bit behind the scenes in a lot of the stuff. Right. Yeah, I, think, I think that's the case. I mean, that's what I that's from what I've read of the history of the city. And again, Woodruff is Woodruff. For those who don't know, that is Coca Cola. Right. Uh, also, was in 1962. Are, are you familiar with the plane crash that there were? Absolutely. Right. Or, or, or yeah, yeah. Uh, did that have any effect on the advent of sports coming here? Because there were so many uh, civic leaders that died at that time. In the in the 800 page version, there's like eight pages on that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I, I go into it. I mean, it also it, for one thing, I think it helps to, um, I guess. The I don't know if the right word would be congeal or bring together what remained of the civic establishment is, is okay. my perception of it. Right. In terms of achieving these grand civic goals, boy, we bet we better make you make use of our, our combined skills while we're still all together. I mean, it's such a such a tragic and horrible thing. Well, that's um, interesting. And that, Ivan that makes Allen's, sense. I mean, just Ivan Allen's leadership coming through again in that horrible situation, being right. such a such a brave face for the whole thing. Right. Right. All right, we've taken up a good bit of your time. Uh, really appreciate you coming on, giving us advanced copies so we could read the book ahead of this podcast. It's a great book. As Atlanteans in particular, it's great to relive some of these moments, even though for Coach, some of them are you know not the most positive. Um, so uh, Early years of sports in this, in this yeah. city are not that positive. Yeah. Good cautionary tale. Good you know, getting to how the sausage is being made, which <laughs> no one ever wants to admit that we are all curious by that so before we let you go just one more time anyone you want to acknowledge in the in the book oh, by the way thank you for the acknowledgement in the book yeah i saw that yeah that was very oh, thank you guys so much for your support it's been, yeah. so, it's been such a pleasure talking with you guys over the last few years and i appreciate appreciate your friendship and support absolutely and we knew this you had mentioned that you had been working on this book previous times you've been on the show so it's exciting that it's out now or will be out shortly 
Um, hey, so- and the next time you're in Atlanta, give us a call. Let's have a drink. You know, whatever. <laughs> oh, you know it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure sometime in the promotion of the book, I'll be down in town. I mean, so much of this has been on Zoom recently. You know, right. I either got my like family pictures in the background or I got like my VHS tapes and people asking, you know, oh, that's, that's a nice copy of Excalibur you have or whatever behind you, you know, things so. Nice. Yeah, you're sneaking in town doing all this research and going to Emory. I mean, you get a, you know, yeah. <laughs> call call us out. But no, for real. It, well, a lot of this yeah. is before I ever spoke with you, though. I mean, a lot of that research stuff is going on like 2016, 17. I think we first spoke in 2018. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. True. Fair enough. Fair enough. But moving forward, yes. You be sure oh, to let indeed. us know. Because um, we can also do, do these podcasts in person. It's amazing, the, the technology, oh, yeah. how that works. Um, but, uh, uh, just anyone you want to credit for, you know, in particular for helping you put this book together. Um, and then also be sure to tell the good listeners, uh, where they can find the book. Well, well, this, this project wouldn't happen without my advisor at, uh, Boston college and graduate school, Lynn Johnson. She really, in many ways helped me get the whole concept together. Uh, my agent, John, uh, John Rudolph's been incredibly helpful in terms of finding a home for the book with the university of Nebraska press, where Rob Taylor has been a, been a fantastic editor to work with. Uh, the book is loserville, how professional sports remade Atlanta and how Atlanta remade professional sports. It's available from the university of Nebraska press on February 1st and is available for pre-order now from amazon.com barnes and noble and all the other fine online book retailers you want to follow me on twitter i'm at clayton truder i'm also on facebook too and i'd love to be your friend uh clayton where'd you get the title i got the title from a two-part uh, louis grizzard uh column in july 1975 in the atlanta constitution he, he used it as a descriptor for the first decade of pro sports in town the the uh, lack of on-field success and also box office success of the teams it's written during probably I, I would say the Braves worst year in the summer of 75 when they draw like 534,000 fans for the year and fall 40 and a half games out of first place I just wanted to get that in uh mentioning Louis Grizzard around here never hurts yes. <laughs> yeah and it's been really accurate until just a few weeks ago because Atlanta, city of champions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As I've said many times, it's like the book, the title is about the 60s and 70s. It's not a commentary on Reese. I mean, the Braves and really in the last 30 years have been, in my mind, the model organization in baseball in terms of consistency. The Falcons played very well for three quarters in a Super Bowl. <laughs> and the Hawks have been very good in recent years, too. That Yeah. Yeah. The Hawks. It, it, Ice tray. Heck yeah. We, we're, we're believers now. I mean, to me, would be the, the most uh, exciting sports championship in my life is to see the Hawks actually the, win. The five NBA stripes are, have done fairly well, too. Well, I, I, I meant to. I yes. meant. I, I, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to say that earlier when we were talking about the challenges of an expansion team and you got to you got to build the support early leading up to when the first game happens. But Atlanta United was a model expansion franchise. Arthur Blank did that better than anything he's done with the Falcons, and he's been really great with the Falcons for the most part. Um, Absolutely. You know, if I'm going to say one, if I could say one, one positive thing I could think about with Lester Maddox is Lester Maddox was a huge promoter of youth soccer. Once the once once the um, once once the uh, Chiefs get to town, he has a youth soccer week in the state in April of 1967. And Atlanta metro area goes from having 500 youth soccer players to like 25,000 overnight, and it's continued ever since then. So in in a very small way, I think he is uh, is the kernel of what happens uh, with the, the broad popularity of those teams get that the Atlanta United have gotten in recent years. I want to say one positive thing about Lester Maddox, which is very difficult for me to do, but yeah. he did reform the uh the the penitentiary system here. Yeah. Did away yeah. and did away with uh chain gangs. You know, so you, you would have yeah. you would have thought he, he would have promoted he it. But... A, he he governed differently than he talked. He, he was a much tougher talker, I think, than he actually was as a governor, because I think in part he didn't really have much of a consensus yeah. in the state house for a lot of the stuff he was doing. I mean, you know, he'd been, you know, over overnight got made governor, but I think a lot of those people who, who were his, uh, particularly those from, uh, who weren't from, you know, way out in the countryside were not, you know, not exactly Maddox sites in, right. in the state house. No, no. <laughs> Very unfortunate, uh, uh, that he ran on a populism ticket of segregation at a time of, yeah. Yeah, in the 60s. I was always very glad that Greg Maddox's name had a U in it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, all right. I hope for nothing but a tremendous success with this book. Um, and that it leads to that it leads to you writing more books like this. Such a great what's the word I'm looking for? A uh, weaving of a, a sports centric topic with just a civic cultural development topic. Um Thank you. Yeah, you know, thank you. And I know I'm biased in that because it's Atlanta. Uh again, the book is Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports from University of Nebraska Press. Uh Clayton, so great having you on. We'll talk to you again soon, man. All right. Thank you guys so much. Thanks again. All right. Coming back quickly. I would be remorse if we didn't finally take our victory lap as long suffering Braves fans for our 2021 World Series champion Atlanta Braves coach. What can we say? Go first. Eh, 25 years. No big deal. (laughs) Every 25 years. (laughs) I guess if you're winning one every 25 years, that's Oh, that's okay. <laughs> no, but the, but we'll take it right now. My God, it was just I, to me. It was such house money. I mean, we were talking in August that there's you know no chance for this team. The fact that they made the playoffs at all was like the victory, right? I I I, I so thought they wouldn't do anything once Acuna went down. He's so integral to the team, and when uh, and and we start off with our number one. Uh, pitcher going down then our number three hitter goes down uh in one way or another uh and <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we uh, just it was amazing it was amazing yeah i compare this i mean everybody was saying party like it's 1995 did you think that that was i felt like this was more like 91 but did this i, I agree yeah. it was more like 91 95 it was like it was about time you know right, uh, right. we had 91 we were an upstart team uh but in 93 and 92 we, we were as good as anybody we you know we being the Braves uh, we expected them to win and so 95 was like it's about time you know thank goodness that was, you know we wipe our brow but yeah this exactly. was like yeah I mean even the characteristics of it I mean just like you know we're, we're we have Max Freed who's like the the lefty the Tom Glavin lefty having the carrying the staff and then some key acquisitions coming in much like when we got Terry Pendleton before the 91 season um can't say enough about what double a did yeah. uh with all those uh, all those trades and maneuvers uh in July this was to me so sweet because it's the nobody believes in us team and that's what I've always wanted you want to be that nobody believes in us when did right. you actually believe in the in the run of the playoffs maybe when there was Three outs left in game six. (laughs) In the run of the playoffs, when did I think we were going to win it? When did you actually believe, believe, yeah. That not until the final game. I mean, uh, I, I, uh, and I, I, but I was ecstatic about where we were throughout. I believe that every team we played in the playoffs was a better team than us. We just played better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the uh, I think the way we handled our pitching staff was people are not giving that enough credit. You know, uh, we, we had Morton go down. You know, uh, all this stuff uh, pitching on a broken leg, right. mind you. That right. was just like that was Bob Gibson esque, <laughs> right? Uh, the uh, we it was it was an amazing thing. I uh, and the all of these acquisitions that came in, they continued to. Uh, excel in the playoffs it wasn't just uh they came in and for a couple of weeks had their hot streak i mean look at what rosario did you know uh solar's home run hasn't come down yet unbelievable in the same place where that infamous albert Pujols home run was hit in 2005 solaire's was even better oh yeah it felt like even greater of the moon shot you know i we, we of course will have to mention that you know all the controversy around the the tomahawk chop. You and I have talked about this. We would have retired it several points years ago. You know, even changed the name to the hammers. Um, I I would love to see the Braves just completely distance themselves from encouraging the chop. I think that's doable. I think that it can be done without creating a whole stir and a conflict of things, which is the nature of American society in 2021. So we'll just leave it at that. How great was the battery throughout this whole playoff run? <laughs> the the fact that they 
the Cobb County police had to shut down like a five square mile area around the battery because there were just too many people there. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's when they're in L.A. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. Not just when the Braves are playing, but there's so many people at the battery uh, on the green and everything that they have to shut down the city uh, <laughs> around the place. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the battery, to say the least, but can't argue with the results and what that crowd did to, you know, really, re you know, create a home field advantage that hasn't existed for the Braves since 1991 and 92. I mean, truly. Yeah. God, what else? Uh, what was your favorite moment of, of the... Well, I need to say this. The point where I actually started to allow myself to believe was after we took the first two of the Dodgers series. At yeah, that moment, we, but we did the same thing the year before. I know, I know, and 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 again, when it came to this team after those two games, then the Jock Peterson, we are those mfers. Like I really was like, yeah, now I can, now I can see it, now I can feel it. Um, but that said, I, it wasn't until it was all said and done that I would even really entertain such a thing, uh, such a false hope. Um, what was your favorite moment of the entire postseason run? Um. Other than the ending, obviously. Austin Riley's home run in the, uh, um, you know, that won it in the, the previous round against the Astros. Uh, previous round against the Astros? Or, no, I mean, against or, the Brewers. Brewers, yeah, I'm sorry. The Brewers, who were my, I thought that they were going to emerge from the National League and we beat them in, in, in the four games and it was just like, what is happening? Yeah. Built for October. Um, Assuming we sign back Freddie and let's say Dansby and and you know Dansby's not a free agent. Oh, okay. I thought he was. Um, it's next year. He's he's arbitration this year. All right. So assuming Freddie, we sign him back, get that deal done, uh, get Acuna back, maybe midseason next year. Does this team repeat? Can we repeat? What what kind of odds would you give that? Oh, I I, I think we will repeat. You think we will? Yes. Oh yes. my God. The uh, I uh, oh no I'm let me see we will I think we'll get to the World Series again I'm not not I'm gonna not, not gonna go all in right uh, and uh, and I don't even know I, the Dodgers are still a better team than us you know that's uh, they're not gonna be able to sign back everybody either no they're so. not uh, but and we will ha uh, still have the best infield in baseball yeah with uh, our superstar back so there you go well, provided that we signed Freddie. <laughs> um the atlanta sports curse much much maligned much made of in the last you know 10 years in particular uh is that over to you can we die in peace now oh uh, i we, we can die in more peace uh the uh <laughs> I, I, a greater peace I, yeah I, I don't know that curses are real or that they uh or that they can be uh or they can end either <laughs> <laughs> that it's not uh it's not as the uh uh the lord of the rings would suggest right right okay fair enough unexpected to say the least that the braves would win it this year obviously we've been thinking they're in the mix uh going back to 2018 and acuna's uh, uh ascendance um but given that we've won this title as the nobody believes in us team and no one really expected it what is the next title that you want to see in your sports fandom well i see the hawks win same. Well, but if I'm going to say in Atlanta, I'd like to see Georgia Tech be national champions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would, too. Talk about a long shot. Yeah, that's kind of a long shot. Yeah. You're, you're in both football and basketball or just one of them? Oh, no. I would like to see it in football because that would be more yeah. uh, unlikely. That would be the most unlikely, I think, at this point. Um, as far as pro sports titles, though, the Hawks, I mean, and, and they're an exciting young team, but that would just be, I don't, I wouldn't know what to do with myself if the Hawks actually won an NBA title. So, but Hey, I believe now I believe in, in so much of hope and goodness in this world. <laughs> um, last thing, I guess, uh, wh where were, where were you, uh, watching from when the, when they got the final out? Oh, right here. Uh, was it radio it, silence? Would you not look at your phone, or were you texting other people? I think I texted you, but I don't know if you texted me back. I, I was talking to people and texting people and everything else. I was excited. Yeah. yeah. When it actually, the final out was recorded, I was overwhelmed by how many people were calling 
and sending text oh, messages. Yeah. Like, right, right. The cohesion of of Atlanta people and fans was just wonderful. I I recommend it to everybody who roots for a sports team. Sorry, Seattle. <laughs> All right, and uh, hey, actually, and Cleveland. Yeah, sorry, Cleveland. Uh, well, no, they had the Cavs. You know, they got that one with LeBron. Um, shout out to Kate Fratar, Oakland A's fan, friend of the podcast. She was the first call. She called me first oh, really? out of everybody okay. else. Yeah. So there you go. Thanks, Kate. All right. Well, thank you again to uh, Mr. Clayton Trudor for joining us on the podcast today to talk about his book, Loserville. Thank you, as always, to everyone who follows and listens to the Running the Bases podcast. You can find all things Running the Bases at our website, runningthebases.com. Uh, follow us on Instagram at Running the Bases, on Twitter at Running the Base, and you can like us on Facebook. We will like you too. So, for the world champion Coach Bounds <laughs> and the world champion Tucker Wells, we're going to own this. Uh, this has been and is the Running the Bases podcast. We're coming into home and we're safe. Coach, you have yourself a, a, a great night, a great Thanksgiving, and just. Uh, We've got something really to be thankful for. We've got something to really be thankful for to celebrate. So you have yourself a great all those things, and we'll see you again soon. Good night.